Welcome to Finding Proof, where we discuss all things early stage VC. We're your hosts, Thanasis and Jenny of the Proof Fund, and our goal is to get to know the best seed and early stage VCs out there. Today, we're speaking with Caitlin Strandberg, who is a principal at Lara Hippo. Lara Hippo is an early stage venture capital fund based in New York City that invests across all categories. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us today. We're really excited to have you on the podcast. As a starting point, it would be great to learn a little bit more about you and your background and how you got into venture capital. Sure. Thanks for having me. I've been working in venture for the most part since 2012, 2013. Before venture, I worked at a couple of early stage startups. I worked at a company called Behance as an early employee, which was acquired by Adobe and a company called LearnVest, which was later acquired by Northwestern Mutual. I dabbled in venture at a great fund called Flybridge. I went to business school, thought I was going to try to start a couple companies. I had massive founder envy, which is why I went to work for startups to learn how to be a great founder. I tried. Turns out I'm a terrible entrepreneur and founder. <laughs> and so I thought, those that can't do, invest. <laughs> and that's going to upset some investors. I graduated from business school. I went to Harvard Business School and landed at a fund called First Mark. I was there for a couple of years and then switched gears to join Lair Hippo as an active seed investor. Awesome. Having worked for startups previously, what do you think are some of the best learning elements that you got out of those experiences that you've then funneled into being an investor? That's a great question. You know, I have a, I think I probably have a bit of a non-typical answer here, which is I think your experience as an operator, the content you learn and the technology you use and some of the challenges you deal with, they largely have a half-life. And so I don't think the content of what you learn at a startup is necessarily that relevant for yep. a venture investor. But what I do think you pick up is a lot of the experience, the environment, some of the softer skills. So for me, I really developed a deep empathy for startup employees and founders. It is very difficult to start a company. A lot of things get sacrificed, family, friends, relationships, even other opportunities, career opportunities. So when you get excited about an idea and you rally people around you to really go for it and build something, it's a very hard choice and it's a very difficult life, at least temporarily, especially at that early stage. So for me, seeing that firsthand really gives me a lot of respect and empathy for early startup teams, founders. I could not agree more with that, by the way. I mean, you know, being a founder in startups are sexy for sure from the outside, but when you're in it, it can be really, and you move fast and you learn a ton and you make a ton of mistakes and you just go, go, go. You're under-resourced, you're over-utilized and it can be tough to the race to build something impactful. I remember, you know, the panic that sets in at a company when you have a board meeting in a week and every department's got to get their slides in and it's just, you go back and forth, back and forth and you need to be doing a million things, not necessarily spitting out slides for investors to read or not read. So I take board decks pretty seriously. I understand that energy and that focus and attention, the power that an investor has in a room, that perceived power and the pressure that creates. So that's kind of like one piece. I think the other is, I was very fortunate to work with 
people I consider to be phenomenal founders. So Scott Belsky at Behance, Alexa Montobel at LearnVest. There's just something special and, and powerful about them. There's like the charisma to get people excited about an idea. There's a clear thinking. They're visionaries. And even when I was at Flybridge early in my career, I saw up close some of the best founders out there. I saw, you know, Kevin Ryan and Dwight at MongoDB. And I think I developed a sense of good versus great. Early in my career, it's really hard to judge the quality of a founder in just an hour or two of meeting them. And so I always had a bar, which was, are they at Scott and Alexa's and, you know, Dwight's level? And that was kind of a way that I could sort without knowing that much, without having that much experience in my career. So those are the two things that I really experienced and took with me into my venture career. And out of curiosity, what sorts of companies were you interested in potentially founding? And has that impacted what markets or what companies, you know, you choose <laughs> to fund and look for? Oh, I plead the fifth. I can't. <laughs> um, I will say, uh, like any good MBA, I tried to start a travel company. I actually had a little bit of credibility in this space because I was interning part-time at a company called Lola Travel, which is founded by the founders of Kayak.com. I tried to do one of those and then I tried to do a consumer brand, but I can't have this follow me. <laughs> those, the, the door is closed. You know, really, I knew how important it was to find a phenomenal co-founder. You need to find someone that you're just going to like be in the trenches with. I didn't find that, um, someone that I could kind of trust and partner and really think through things with. You also need to be so passionate about an idea that you could your life to it, you know, at least 10 years. And as much as I love to travel and business school, I didn't really feel that passionate about it. I'm much more passionate about building something than that a particular idea. So I knew that when I was 21, graduating from undergrad and going to a startup, being a founder was really cool. And then I saw it up close. And so when I'm graduating from business school, I'm thinking hard about my values and the lifestyle and how I want to spend my life and what I want to learn. And do I want to be a CEO and founder or the coach or the player? And so I did a little soul searching to figure out what I really liked and wanted to do and ended up realizing I love venture. I love this job. I love investing. And that can be a difficult, I think, insight and choice when you're, I must have been like 28 when I graduated because you have friends going to Uber, Google, starting companies, some working with the best founders out there and going to Stripe in 2016. And you have this sense of like, they're all doing something. They're learning a skill. They're getting operational experience. They're managing. I went to a leadership heavy school. I wasn't managing anyone in venture. You do make this trade-off where if you go down the path of venture, you start to move away from transferable skills. And it really is that coach versus the player. And you can do a lot of cool things when you're young and you've got the energy and you have the excitement. And so to decide to do venture, I think a very considered choice is one, you don't know how long you're going to get to continue to do venture. And two, you're moving away from the operating skill set. So it was a difficult choice. Yeah, no, definitely. And just as a follow-up question, then I'm going to flip it to Thanasis. So that love of travel and experience in that space, does that lend you to be considerably more excited and seek out companies that are within that respective space? I was trying to learn as much as possible outside of a narrow bubble of New York City tech and startups because I knew I would come back. And I knew that I needed to build the repository almost of experiences and insight and thoughts and learn about weird industries and learn about oil and gas so that I could at least have some context that could inform me when I came back. And it was a little bit of a life is long. 
who says I'm going to love travel 10 years from now, 20 years from now? Hopefully I change. Hopefully I'm very different. So it was really just like, get the exposure you can, because this is one of the last opportunities you can kind of be in this pressure cooker of ideas and inspiration and meet so many different people and just crack open my worldview. And one thing I'll say here, which I just, I love this anecdote. I remember being in business school and it's like a very competitive school and it's full of all sorts of personalities. And I was like, you know, bright eyed and I love venture. I love startups. And this private equity guy was like, oh, venture capital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like a really cute asset class. And I was like, er? <laughs> it's what? And he said, yeah, like how big is the fun? And I told him, he's like, oh yeah, we're like much bigger. And it was humbling. Yeah. There are a lot of ways to make a lot of money and there are a lot of ways to change the world. And venture and startups is just the tiniest slice. How did you learn about venture? How would you find out about venture and what got you interested in having that as a career? I initially got interested in venture when I was at Behance and I didn't know what venture capital was. I had no clue. I joined Behance because I loved the startup company and I wanted to join a startup and keep building that out. I, I had a great entrepreneurial experience in undergrad and I actually was reading blogs. So my first exposure, I remember this moment was there's a woman named Christina Cassiopo, who is an analyst at Union Square Ventures, and she had this great blog. And I came across it on Twitter and I was like, pull the phone, this is a job. And I reached out to her and she told me what the job was like. I just always had it top of mind. Scott Belsky had let me into a couple of investor meetings when Behance was raising because he was just trying to give me some exposure to different experiences. And I actually sat in on the Flybridge investor meeting. So that's how I got to know some of the guys. But that was kind of the initial exposure. But all along the way, I didn't know if I wanted to do venture as a career because the partner level venture career, everything you do leading up to it, unless you're at a, a shop where you can have a full stack experience, your first year is sourcing, your second year is sourcing and maybe picking, but you're doing a lot of founder leverage. But your third experience is maybe you're getting a little bit of board work and board activity, but you're also sourcing. And nowhere in that early experience are you just doing boards just making decisions and trying to exit the companies. And that really, in fundraising, that's really the bulk of the job as you get more senior and older. And so for me, I was just never sure if I wanted to do it because I was never experiencing that back end. And now I'm a little bit closer to that. So you have to choose to get on the path and then stay on the path. And every little bit, be pretty introspective. I'm like, do I like this? So that's how I got into venture and how I thought about growing in it advice do you have for people that are looking to break into venture? It's become incredibly competitive, particularly coming out of business school. It's almost supplanted the investment banking management consulting track. I think the most important thing is determine what you want to learn in your first two years. What do you want exposure to? And then in two years, you pick your head up and you think, do I like this or not? Right. A lot of people coming out of business school are like, I need to go somewhere where I can partner track and I can track record and I can do deals. And there are just so many things that get in the way of that. The sands shift all the time. Team structures change. Cultures are different than you expect. You might find out that maybe you don't even really like the job. And so my thinking is find a place where you can get as much exposure to the things you want to learn and then be introspective about that. I did that where I went to First Mark, which is a little bit of series A, series B and up. They're definitely a more quantitative analytical fund. I didn't really have that background. And so it was an eat your spinach type decision. Is that a phrase? Eat your spinach? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Canassus, is, is it just like a me thing? 
<laughs> Caitlin's like, yeah, it's definitely a you thing. <laughs> okay. Um, Learn new things every day. I mean, I really like, I guess it's teacher broccoli, but I needed to skill up. I needed to get comfortable reading legal docs. I needed to get comfortable building cap tables. I needed to bolster my experience because candidly, unless you go to a traditional shop, which there are a few of those, and there are only a couple of on-ramps, no one's really sitting down with you and showing you this stuff. You kind of have to learn it on the fly. And it's really hard to do that. It's definitely an apprenticeship. It's one of the few business professions that are closest to an apprenticeship that I've seen. Yes. So it's definitely an apprenticeship, but I think it's also an industry where a lot of people don't want it. Like a lot of the senior people don't want to do that. And so there's there really one path to learn, but no one really wants to hand off the keys. Only like the big shops. I think Insight does a great job. Bessemer does a great job. Graycroft does a great job. But for the most part, it's like, oh, this is an apprenticeship business. And they're like, oh yeah, you can be my apprentice. And that's where it ends. <laughs> It's like, figure it out. I, I think that's the unfortunate truth about some of the culture of a majority of venture funds. But you got to be resourceful. Founders don't know what they're doing. Switching gears for a second here. Tell us a little bit about Larry Hippo. What is the fund all about? What's the strategy? So Larry Hippo is a early stage fund based in New York City, but we invest all over the country. I would say we tend to be New York first. But a bunch of investments in LA, a bunch of investments in California, Toronto, Texas. And we're known for our consumer investments, but we are a consumer and enterprise fund. We are actually 50-50 consumer and enterprise. So we're known for the consumer investments largely because of the name recognition of those companies. We were the first chicken to Casper, Warby Parker, Allbirds, Glossier, all of those fun ones. But there are a number on the enterprise side that consumers and people generally don't have much recognition when you say like Namely or Moat or any of those types of companies. We are operating out of a $125 million fund right now. This is fund seven. Our strategy is to own about 10% of a business, writing anywhere from one to $3 million is our check-in. And we really want to take you from C to Series A. That's the goal. We have a phenomenal platform team where between that and our network of over 250 portfolio companies and founders, we like to have the best answer for any question you could have from C to Series A. Got it. And is there a particular sector focus or is there a geographic focus? Obviously, you have a lot of companies in New York, but how do you think about those? I think the only geographic focus is being New York first. So that really shakes out to be, you know, I'd say like maybe 60% of our portfolio ends up being in New York and the surrounding area. I think we like lump in Boston, we lump in, you know, maybe Philly, but we really are New York geography focused. But that means 30 to 40% is mostly on the West Coast. We're doing more and more in LA because LA is a very similar ecosystem to New York. And also San Francisco is just so competitive. It's kind of like, why would we get to play in there unless it was in our core areas of expertise, which I think are consumer, e-com, media, and things like that. Um, surprisingly, we're very deep and very strong pet tech, and we've been doing that for a long time. So that's like kind of a fun category. As a seed investor, I think it's really difficult to be thematic. But so I think having some areas that you're interested in different spaces, but not necessarily being married to themes, the spaces that we're looking at a lot are next generation e-com and the next generation consumer. Blair Hippo's only been around for about 10 years, and we were the early wave of direct-to-consumer companies after 2010. We invested in many of them. We were starting to see a second wave leading up to, to 2020, and then COVID happened. And so COVID-19 has really accelerated e-com probably by five to six years. 
and we're paying very close attention to that. U.S. retail sales before COVID, e-commerce accounted for 12 to 13%. Now it's like 25%. And the thinking is people aren't going to go back to buying and spending the way they did in the past. There are going to be some categories that just stay online because they're so convenient. And then you also have these new consumer groups coming online. So we spend a lot of time thinking about Gen Z. We're in companies like Studs, Parade, Topicals, Brat TV. We have a very strong Gen Z thesis. I love that community. I'm, I love Gen Z. I love that consumer. And then we've got the boomer generation, which is shifting spend online, where there are actually a ton of opportunities, and it's a largely underserved and forgotten market in the aging population across every category. So we're spending time thinking about that and watching how they converge on this massive adoption of e-com and buying online. So that's one thing we think of. And then the other piece we think a lot about is some of the B2B and B2C opportunities around marketplaces when you've got an incumbent like Amazon. Kind of. mm-hmm. <laughs> Amazon yeah. We never used to talk about Amazon. It was a bookstore and now it's like, what's your Amazon strategy? Are you a category that Amazon serves? So we in a marketplace for almost like equestrian farm products and gears called Coro. So those are some of the spaces. And there's the massive stuff we're paying attention to, which is these seismic shifts. So healthcare, obviously we're all over that. We have a ton in healthcare, education, massively being disrupted. And then you've got future work. So these are big areas of spend. And now that they're getting transformed with tech and innovation, so we're watching that place closely. There's a must have these days is like, there has to be founder market fit. So if you're a founder building in the space that you have experience in, that really pops for us. And that's really important for us. Our best founders have had that experience. Phil from Casper had a mattress company, worked for a mattress company at a college. There's so many examples. Emily Weiss was an intern at Vogue. But if you don't have that founder market fit, particularly in these complex markets, we're usually not that interested. So we look for companies and opportunities with that. Yeah. On the e-commerce side of things, on enterprise, are you guys paying close attention to logistics and fulfillment solutions as well as the counterpart? Yeah. Yep. We think the supply chain kind of like department at consumer companies is mission critical. Yep. We spend a ton of time thinking about it. We have some great companies too. And then personally, as an investor, are you focused across both consumer enterprise or are there certain areas that you like to focus on? I do both. I'm a generalist for sure, which honestly is a ton of fun for me. So I do both B2B and and B2C. I'm in a healthcare B2B company called Medley Pharmacy, which was slightly later stage. We did the A, which is amazing. So I have that on one hand. And on the other hand, I have Parade, which is like a next generation Victoria's Secret. So Right. And you did studs as well, right? Did studs. Yeah. I love that company. What is studs? Have you ever seen a Claire's in the mall? Yes. Gosh. Claire's. So this is like a, I know, right? This is like a <laughs> Claire's, but Claire's is like tired. So studs is a piercing and a adornment company for like self-expression. So you, you can do two things. You can buy earrings or you can go in and get your ear pierced. And they've created what it's called an earscape. Previously, it was very difficult just to buy one earring. You would have to buy a set. And so they've found a way to merchandise the ear. It's a really exciting brand. They've got a great social impact mission. Gen Z loves it. So we did the seed there with first round and it's a really cool company. I am what I consider to be a younger millennial and the Gen Z consumer wants like nothing to do with me. I'm an older millennial. <laughs> I can assure you <laughs> that it's worse. <laughs> Gen Z. But I, again, I love the Gen Z consumer. They're so diverse. 
It's all about self-expression. There's flexible gender identity, flexible sexual identity. It's a different consumer that looks different and feels different and they're authentic and they care about different things and they care about social missions. So we're all over companies in that space and I love them. And studs is a really cool and exciting one. The retail space is unreal too. You walk in and you're like, I've never been in a place like this. And so that also dovetails nicely with their idea of next generation retail. Is there a company that you can use as an example to talk about how you found them, the strategy and what you're excited about? So we, made, we did the first check in the Allbirds. If you're not familiar, Allbirds started as a shoe company using all natural materials instead of plastics and rubber. They use wool, right? They use wool and tree and sugar cane for flip-flops. The company is very successful right now. A lot of people are wearing Allbirds shoes, Allbird t-shirts. I'm wearing Allbirds socks. They have sweaters now. It's showing the world that you can make everyday apparel using better materials and a better supply chain. So that's where they are now. One of the things we loved about Allbirds when they presented was Joey, who's one of the founders, is actually very passionate about correcting climate change and reducing the carbon footprint. This was the basis for building the company and using these alternative materials, but also he's been a huge vocal supporter of companies put in a carbon tax on their businesses. He requires all of the vendors and suppliers or many of them to kind of abide by some of these new rules, regulation, awareness of carbon emissions. And that is his main focus, kind of like life's work, being impactful through that and showing the world that the Nike, the Adidas, the Lululemons of the world, there is a better way to do this, better for the world, better for consumers. And you can build something that people love and you can do it that way. So he has this social mission. He's a purpose-driven founder, which we love. Both of the founders had incredible brand DNA. When they pitched us, it was a company called Three Over Seven. And it was like a weird looking wool shoe. I think when we made the decision, it was like, these guys are really passionate. They want to go after climate change. Can they beat Nike? I don't know. We don't know, but they seem to know and they're thoughtful. They have a plan. They have a roadmap. Let's just see what happens. And so they, they eventually changed the name to Allbirds. They changed the branding. They were able to really control the brand DNA. They knew how to market to a consumer. They have a great way of creating an editorial calendar of marketing moments with either product launches or partnerships. Now they have an open source shoe design for Adidas, which is amazing. And consumers have loved it and responded to it. And so those are the things you really look for. Like Very comfortable shoes. I can attest to that. Yeah. I own a couple of pairs. <laughs> I have, I have like, a, like a, too many pairs. But yeah, I mean, that's exactly the type of thing we look for. And we don't necessarily know it when we see it. I think one thing I love about Larry Hippo is we just look for great founders that are really excited about what they're building in a market that's big enough and that has some room for innovation. And then we get out of their way. We're as helpful as they want us to be, or we get out of their way. Cause like, we don't know the reason companies are successful has nothing to do with us. And we know that it has everything to do with the founder driving the mission. We help where we can, but they're the folks that turn these businesses into massive successes. And we're just kind of grateful to be along for the ride and, and help where we can. So you look for founders that are like that. And we have, we saw that with Glossier, we saw that with Warby Parker, we saw that with Casper, we've seen this with many of our recent investments too. And sometimes you're wrong and sometimes you're right. A lot of things happen that have nothing to do with the founder, that have nothing to do with it. And you just have to kind of play some bets and help where you can. So at this point, we want to flip into our standard questions. Yeah. So the first question is the NVCA question. 
the National Venture Capital Association advocates for public policy and supports the venture community and the American entrepreneurial ecosystem. If there's one thing that you could change about the venture capital industry or one policy that you would advocate for, what would it be? So I would imagine that this is a common one, but I think it's an answer that needs to be repeated over and over until there's actually real change. I'm obviously very excited about the renewed focus on diversity in venture. One thing that many people don't think about when they think about diversity is like, it's actually called diversity and inclusion. So having diversity standalone and having new and different faces on your website is great, but you have to have them stay, which means you have to change as a fund, as a culture, your value system. And I think that's something that the NBCA or the venture capital community needs to really watch and think about more broadly because when people leave and people depart, it's not really real change. And I think another piece here is like equal economics or better economics for either younger people or more diverse people in funds. You know, this is a problem, particularly with women in, in venture and even with female investors period is they just don't show up on the cap table. They're not doing angel investments. They're not showing up on carry sheets and as an LP or as a broader community, that's really important. We do it for companies to an extent. Salesforce is a good job. We don't do that with funds. And there's a lot of ambiguity and lack of transparency. And that's one of these kind of key tenets of inclusion. So, you know, I think that's important. I think we have a long way to go. I think you have to be pretty tough to stick it out. And again, there are many things you can do in your career. So there's got to be incentives in place to feel like you can build a real career in venture. The going advice is like, go start your own fund. That's not a good way to change the industry. That's not changing. That's just subverting. But I think about it a lot. I think there are a lot of amazing, talented people in venture that kind of look and sound different from the norm and they even have invisible diversity in some ways. And so I'm really excited that they're excited about it. And I hope that we can keep them. I think Great. The Gen Z looks different. The future looks different. For sure. Funds have to look different. Our second question is, if you were not a VC investor and money was not a concern, what would you be doing? (laughs) Um, Is talent a concern? Is that? (laughs) No. (laughs) I am excited for this answer. (laughs) I would love to be a touring musician or a performing musician, like a guitar player. I mean, if talent isn't a thing, I'd love to be the front woman of a cool rock band. Realistically, one thing I'd really like to do is I'd love to own a music venue, like a really cool music venue. In Boston, when I was in school there, there was an amazing one called the Sinclair. And it's a great restaurant, great bar, I just loved it. I loved going to shows there. It was such a fun thing. I would love to create my version of that wherever I settle. That would be fun. I won't make any money. So the money piece is a good anchor there. I'll probably lose money. That's awesome. (laughs) We'll see. Who is someone you look up to and why? So I don't think you'll ever get an answer like this. One of my Gen Z founders told me that I was eccentric. And it was when I was talking about this woman. So I have an amazing community of personal advisors and mentors and venture. There's Micah Rosenblum at at Founder Collective. There's Beth Perot at Firstmark. There's Ellie Wheeler at Graycroft. I have an amazing group of people I look up to in venture and that I can go to with anything. Did you tweet about this recently? And is there an HBO show on this individual? Oh, yeah. 
Oh, okay. I know who you're about to say. Okay. Oh, wait. Uh, so my person is Dolly Parton. <laughs> Not the person I was thinking of. <laughs> hey, that's consistent okay. with your career choice of being well, a musician. Well, so oh, I love. So she's having like a whole moment right now. The last two, she's always had a moment. The last two years, there's an NPR show called Dolly Parton's America. Netflix has one, has a documentary called Here I Am, and she has like the most incredible life story. She's like one of twelve. She says she grew up dirt poor. And she is a prolific songwriter. And when you watch these documentaries, you get the sense that she is playing us all. And (laughs) Jane Fonda did a movie with her and was like, we've never seen her without her wig. We've never seen her not made up. She has a very private life. She's an amazing songwriter. People have talked about how she can like disappear for 10 minutes and write a hit on a napkin. She's a phenomenal musician. She's an amazing entrepreneur. She's spun up all these businesses. She owns a lot of her publishing rights. She has Dollywood and she's a big philanthropist. So I have loved learning about her. I'm like deep Dolly right now. And I just think she's so clever and she's so smart and she is unapologetically herself. And I love it. I look up to Dolly. I want to be a small slice of Dolly when I grow up. And finally, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Can I give you three quick ones? So... From my mom, the worst thing someone can ever say is no, and you're exactly where you started. That was why I applied to business school. Be selfish with your career. Only you are looking out for you. That was from a founder I worked with, my first job, my first week. And then from a business school professor who I totally adore. He left us with, be tough-minded, soft-hearted, and kind-hearted in your work with others. I think it's powerful and people forget it kind of day to day. It's hard to be all three of those. And I think that's a good way to live and be authentic. All of those are great pieces of advice. Yeah. (laughs) It's hard to choose one. So I I threw a handful out. Well, Caitlin, thank you so much for taking the time today. It was an absolute pleasure. We really appreciated and enjoyed the conversation and uh, look forward to speaking with you soon. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. And follow us on Twitter at ProofVC or on our website at proof.vc. Mm-hmm.